This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week Extra. It's our weekly podcast bringing you an in depth interview you will not hear anywhere else. So summer is almost officially here. Time to gather up books for reading on the beach, at the lake. Here's one to add to that list. It's perfect for the Hampton set. More than perfect. It is a look inside, and we're so happy to have Holly Peterson here with us to talk about this book and so much more. Thank you so much for coming into the studio. So tell us, to start, why you wrote this book. It's not your first, but it's a juicy one. I believe that we are in a world today of unbelievable inequality between the 99% and the 1%. And the 1% is even getting parsed out into 0.01%, And not enough people really understand what goes on inside that world. I grew up in that world. I also happen to be a hardworking journalist. I was at ABC and Newsweek my whole life. And I feel, honestly, like it's my duty to expose these people and to tell people how it really goes and what goes on in this world, because people need to know how completely insane it is. So you take us then to the Hamptons over the summer, and you're going to tell us a In tale. my we, book, right, yes. In the book. And we don't want to give it all away, because we want people to figure it yes. out and read it. But tell us how you kind of show those inequalities to some extent through your writing. You know, I dated a local guy in the Hamptons for eight years. And I wrote my last book, which was called It Happens in the Hamptons, about the 99% and the 1% in a testosterone-fueled summer community. Because you see the differences between income so much more in the summer. Mm. Because there's more jets, there's more Uber helicopters and Uber seaplanes, which are done by the Blade Company, as I'm sure you all know. You know, people have more staff, they have more parties, they entertain more. And in cities like New York, it's harder to show how much money you have during the colder months. In the summer, you know, you can drive around in the Porsche. People don't really drive in New York. So there's so much more. You drive on the jet on the weekends. There's so much more ways to show your wares in the summer that I felt like the Hamptons is just absolute prime material to kind of expose the ways of the wealthy, satirize them, and then hopefully in a deeper way, you know, have some commentary on what that says about our world today. I mean, people think that It's Hot in the Hamptons is a light beach read, but I hate it when they say that because I think that it's actually a substantive look at what's going on in our society. Well, and as you read the book, you do, to that exact point, get this sense of this is in some ways a tale as old as time. As mm-hmm. you say, you know, it's the the seasonals versus the townies. Yes. It's about money. Yes. It's about sex. It's about power and all of that mixed together in New York in many ways. How do you create these sort of archetypal characters? Well, I see them around me all the time. Um, I grew up with a man who was an important Wall Street guy, and he was a self-made man. His name was Pete Peterson. He died last year. He was an incredible person. And he really taught me that You know, a life well-lived is a life where you're working incredibly hard until the day you die, on the one hand. And on the other hand, it's, you know, a deep awareness of your privilege, of giving back, and an awareness of other people. That's really who he was. I don't know if you ever knew him at all. But, you know, I try to be a journalist who really tells stories as I see them. And I try to expose those things that I think are important to be exposed. And one of them is the inequality, the differences between us, and also the psychology of these incredibly privileged people. So I want want to talk about your dad for for a second, because I did know him a a little bit and, you know, knew him sort of in the, the latter part of his life when he had 
accomplished so many things. And, and Carol and I actually, in preparing for this, Had a conversation we're like yesterday. walking through his yeah. biography. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is, is that there aren't people who exist like him anymore. I mean, almost no there one aren't. in the sense of, you know, and, and you'll keep me honest here, CEO of a major company, head of a Wall Street bank, Secretary of Commerce, founds one of the most influential investment firms later in his life, Blackstone, becomes an amazing philanthropist, creates a think tank, advises presidents, and, you know, chairs the Council of... Chairman of the Council of Relations for 25 years. So tell us what you take from a life like that. Like, go a little deeper for us, because I cannot imagine what it must have been like to grow up with someone like that who, as you say, was self-made a Greek immigrant. I mean, he grew up in a diner, okay? He managed the cash register in a diner in Kearney, Nebraska, that stayed open 24 hours a day for 27 years. And on the night that they decided to close it, they realized they didn't have a key, so they couldn't close it because they'd never once locked the door in 27 years. That's how he grew up. And he grew up at a time when Americans were supposed to be giving back, and they were supposed to earn enough so that they could have a home and save. And all of these values that are such important benchmark American values, he espoused until the day he died. I mean, he moved into a fancy apartment, okay? I decorated it for him because a lot of these CEOs, as you guys know, they can't actually do anything. They can run these things, but when it comes to the daily A, B, C, D steps in life, they can't function. He was one of those guys. He couldn't open a FedEx envelope. He couldn't open a tennis gate. I mean, there are legendary stories about my dad not being able to function in daily life because he had this huge brain and he was doing bigger things. But in any case, I did his whole apartment for him. I decorated it. And on the last day... I thought, you know, isn't it going to be great? Let's just, let me just get flowers in every room because he's such a self-made kind of, not cheap in a bad way, but like he didn't feel comfortable frugal. spending very, very frugal. Yeah. He would never have flowers. Like he just would never do that, right? So I went and I probably spent like $1,200 on four or five or six beautiful bouquets. He came in, he saw this beautiful apartment. He went through the roof <laughs> at the flowers. I can get a damn bouquet of tulips at the corner for 20 bucks. I like to do that for my wife every week. Why on earth would you, you know, and he talked about it for 10 years about the time I got all those bouquets and wasted all that money. So this is what these guys are like. You know, they have really entrenched values and they live them and that's living an authentic life. It really is. It was a great thing to witness. And I think that's really important. And Jason's right. We were talking about this in your dad's background and we were thinking about kind of where we are in the world right now. And it's almost like we need someone out there that has done public service, worked in you know the private world, yeah. has given back, and kind of yeah. understands the world from a from a you know total perspective. Yes. And I feel like we're kind of missing that today. There was a great piece we all have to look up in the Washington Post that was called Wither the Statesman CEO. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. if you think of those guys like John McCloy um, and John Whitehead. Oh, yeah. Obviously, you know, George Kennan and all those economists from the University of Chicago. You don't see a lot of those guys anymore. You don't see a lot of CEOs, not only maybe not able to be statesmen, but not wanting to be statesmen. And I think that's that's a shame. And that's certainly a commentary about where we are today, where it's just get more. It's this narcissistic banker culture of just more, what more, would, more for me. What would your me. dad say or what did he maybe say? Because, you know, about what kind of how the world was evolving. You mean just with the the greed? Yeah. 
Oh, he was horrified by it. Yeah. I mean, he was horrified at compensation meetings at various firms he worked for or boards he was on at what people were asking and the hissy fits they would have in his office over some minute, you know, bonus uptick that they wanted. I mean, he just found it disgusting. Yeah. And so you clearly are drawing on a lot of that for a book like this. You're yeah. satirizing it to a yes. certain extent. And yet, as you go underneath, as I was reading it, I was sort of going through and saying, yep, checks, yep. That makes sense. That makes sense. You know, this guy getting into this car or the polo grounds or whatever it is. People wearing. And And so what is it that has allowed us to to get to this point where you read a book like this and and we say, yeah, that that makes sense, even though it is outrageous in in a lot of ways. You mean they're bad values or how important? I mean, I just, listen, I find... Having grown up with one and around them so much, I find incredibly successful people are incredibly insecure. Yeah. Almost as a rule. They're very, very, very anxious. How many times have you guys ever met a really cool, relaxed, kind of normal CEO who's running a huge multinational conglomerate? You just don't see it. You know, they're anxious by trade, right? And that's that anxiety and that need to succeed is what makes them head of everything. I mean, in order to have that drive where you're going to work 18 hours a day until you're 92 and, you know, 65 days, as my father did, there has to be something in you from your childhood that is fueling a need to achieve and succeed. And sometimes with certain people, it goes a little haywire. I mean, you turn into a total jerk because you're so anxious about how you look and you're so anxious about how you appear and never, never, never is enough. And that's when, you know, people behave really badly. And it's terrible. I mean, why do, why do people with more money and who are more successful, why do they stalk the planet thinking they're actually more important or better than other people? Or above the law. Or above the law. I mean, that's just terrible. It's yeah. terrible values. Why well, does that happen? And I think about, and we've talked about this on our show, the college admission scandal yeah. being sort of one of the manifestations of that mm-hmm. in yes. many ways. Like the, In two ways. One, the rules don't apply to me. Yeah. And two, if I throw enough money at it, it's it'll gonna go solve away. the problem. Yeah. But that, it wasn't always that way, was it? Or has it always been this way and now we're just realizing it? Here's what I think. I think now that the inequality is so enormous and the incapability of people, even in the middle class, to earn a decent rage, wage and pay for rage, they're enraged because of it, to pay for school and a, and a car and a decent home, has created a certain breed of people who are so different from everybody else that they've completely lost perspective. And I think that the, the world of the Internet has also created a very narcissistic breed in many, many people where we get so much so fast. And if you're at the top .001 and you get, not only do you get so much, you have so much and you're so different from everyone else, it's just bad human impulse that goes on that gets perpetrated because people are servicing them. People around them are nervous they're going to lose their jobs. So it just perpetuates mm-hmm. the bad behavior because people are more insecure financially around them. And it just creates a circle of just horrendous behavior. And back to what I was saying at the beginning, in my book, It's Hot in the Hamptons, and in my writing and my articles, I really feel these people need to be exposed for how they behave, their horrible judgment, their bad behavior, and, and more importantly, what psychologically fuels these people, which is either insecurity or, or lack of perspective or utter narcissism or 
anxiety that just creates monsters. I don't know. So as you said, you don't want it to just be a beach read. So tell I don't. us, when somebody picks this up and you're hoping they think about what? Listen, anyone who's writing a book hopes that it gets people to think deeper about something else. I'm not just writing about net jets and helicopters and fancy parties. I'm writing about sex. I'm writing about sexual desire. I'm writing about strong women. I'm writing about drive. I'm writing about anxiety. I'm writing about neuroses. I mean, I'm trying to write a great book about, you know, our deepest human impulses, whether they're they're good or bad. And I think, and it's hot in the Hamptons, people are going to get a real look at rich people, but there's a ton of sex in it. There's a ton of desire in it. There's a ton of wayward behavior that's hopefully incredibly realistic and human and, and teaches people a few things. So we've been joking about this and we joked a bit with you about this before we came on air. Are you, do you just always have a notebook at the ready? Listen, I always have a notebook. Um, most reporters do, yes. right? And as I was saying before, you know, I worked at Newsweek and ABC. I worked for Tina Brown, and now I write books and everything. So I've worked hard my whole life in the media world, like I know you both have. But, you know, I had a father who was a very wealthy man who afforded me a lot of privilege. Now, he gave away probably 90% of his money. He gave he's immensely philanthropic uh, man, but I was still left, obviously, with a lot of privilege and grew up with a lot of privilege. So people who are really rich think I'm absolutely one of them. So they download on me all the time when they see me, and they say the craziest things to me. <laughs> and I think, I can't believe you just said that. Right. I mean, someone said to me last weekend, walking down the street in Southampton, talking about her helicopter, she goes, you know what? Decorating the copter is key. <laughs> and I thought, do you hear yourself? Right. 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 I mean, it's key. <laughs> you didn't even say that ironically. Right. Like, what? You, so you're going to get the guy, you're going to get the suede in, you're going to get the Hermes blanket, you're going to get the initials, it's going to match the totes. Like, where are you going with this? And then she just went to, you know, right. oh, it's going to be Goyard and Hermes and Cashmere. And we're going to, you know, she's so excited. And she didn't once say, you know, this is just madness. And what's going on in her mind, do you think, at that point? I think she's honestly excited yeah. about how the tote bag and the stripe on the leather seat and the mug is all going to match. And she's going to sit there and feel like her little bubble-protected world is all going to be all tight and cool and beautiful and makes her happy because she probably has a horrible marriage and, you know, isn't doing much with her life and doesn't have a lot of meaning. So they attach enormous meaning to nonsense and then they go to bed and... They're probably pretty depressed. How does this end, yeah. or, or, or or what's the, the madness of the, the inequality? Madness. All of it. It has to end. It really has to end. I mean, I remember, you know, in college when you're so kind of confident and you're in class and you think you know the answers to something. And I went and I had this philosophy class, and the teacher kept pushing us. Why is it better to help people? Why is it better? And you know, we answered him. If you're in a circle and everybody's stronger in the circle and their hands are stronger, it makes the organization stronger. And just like these companies that are getting in trouble with minority hires and not paying women and forget the whole harassment thing, if you don't include enough people in the chain, the chain itself is not strong, right? Mm -hmm. And if you have a society where there's so many people who are so in dire straits, it's no good for any of us. It just isn't. It's not good for intellectual life. It's not good for education. It's not good for for poverty and health care. I mean, it's not good for anything. It's better when people are doing better for all of us. But it's crazy. Like, you think about McKinsey. How many years have they done research about the importance of diversity? And then a company, you know, if you've got diverse boards, if you've got diverse senior executive levels, that a company performs better. And yet, here we still are. I know. 
We're still learning. But is it good that we are, you're writing this and we're having these conversations and we're having Me Too. I mean, we're having a dialogue. Listen, Does it help us get to ultimately Even a if it's spot? only the optics of companies to hire more women and hire more minorities, as that's like the cool thing to do right now, whether you look at the art world, whether you look at the fashion world, and certainly Wall Street and law and stuff. Sometimes I think people are doing it because of the optics, right? Mm. But even if that's the impulse now, it's still better because mm. we're going to get more people in these companies. We're going to have more you know, perspectives in these companies, and the companies are going to do better because we live in such an international world. The companies themselves have to cater to more, pe- look at, uh, to more people. Look at what happened with Gucci, with that mm-hmm. blackface mm-hmm. turtleneck. Right. You know, how many people of color are on the design team at Gucci? I bet not a lot. Right. That's why they got in trouble. If they'd had more people on the design team, they would, you know, they could have said, said, "What are you doing?" Yeah. I mean, look at this. This is ridiculous. All right. So you're anyway. walk- you're walking along the beach this summer, and my hope for you is that a lot of people are going to be reading this book, and you'll walk by and you'll sort of nod to them. Yes. How many people are going to come up to you this summer and say, "Was that me? Am I Eddie? Listen, here's Am the I thing. Joey? I, Am I Joey? Am I Caroline? Caroline? Well, or Annabelle? They all for that are. matter, they, they all, all are. are. Yeah. And 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 because I'm a journalist and it's fiction, I call it journalistic fiction. There is nothing in that book that isn't 100 percent accurate. I fact check my novels very very carefully, but there's no need to trash people in life. I just don't live my life that way. I like to think of this book more like Sex in the City, where it's more a a laugh with people about the nonsense than an attack on them. So I don't get myself in trouble. And furthermore, as we all know, rich people are deeply unself-aware people. So even if they said ridiculous things to Mm -hmm. me, like decorating the copter is key, (laughs) it's so normal for them, they don't remember they're the one saying it. I love it. It's such a fun read. Thank you. I think it would be great on the big screen. I, I hope so one day. That was author Holly Peterson. What a fascinating conversation. The things she's seen and thought about mm-hmm. next level. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business Week Extra. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.